our sermon series in the book of Exodus, which we have titled, Wooed in the Wilderness. And so I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. Young disciples, if you haven't grabbed your sermon guides yet, they're right over here on the side table, and you're going to need to write down that passage. Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. You can find that on page 47 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. I didn't plan it out this way, y'all, but it works well for Father's Day. Today we're going to be talking about father and son, and doing so from two angles. First, the privilege of a son, and second, the responsibility of a son. With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word, and if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. I will only be reading verses 21 to 26. Church, hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I know you're like, what's he going to do with this one? I know. Thank you. Happy Father's Day to me. I'm going to go home and drink some bourbon after this and take a nap. Just kidding. How many of you since the sermon series started have watched The Prince of Egypt? Anybody? Okay. A few. I would encourage you to do so. It's fantastic. We did as a family a couple weeks ago and everyone loved it. And it really does bring the story to life, especially for children. Plus, the musical score and the voice actors are amazing. And it is surprisingly close to the biblical narrative for a Hollywood film. But one thing I noticed that is vastly different is what appears to be the motive for God saving the people of Israel. In a phrase, freedom from oppression. God appears as one who hates oppression And the Egyptians have crushed the Israelites with slavery and infanticide. Therefore, God is motivated with compassion to bring justice and to set them free. And you might say, well, of course, isn't that what the Bible teaches? And I would respond, not exactly. God does care about the oppressed and he ultimately will bring justice. And he wants us to be a part of that process in the here and now. But it's just not primary. What says this is primary comes not from the Bible, but from the influence of something called liberation theology. 
Liberation theology teaches that God is, without qualification, always on the side of the oppressed, and that relief from oppression is the true goal of all Christian work. And yes, it does rightfully challenge Christians to not just be concerned with personal piety, but to also be concerned about the good of society, the love of neighbor. However, it takes that too far in making everything about obtaining freedom as the end goal. It's the perfect setup then for Marxist influences to take that even one step further and make everything about obtaining power. So even in something as innocent as the Prince of Egypt, you experience an underlying message that social justice is the key to the human predicament. But God's motive in the book of Exodus is not primarily to bring freedom or to redistribute power. In fact, one scholar puts it this way. The Exodus is more a story of repatriation than emancipation. It is a movement from one form of servitude to another. So remember the words to be spoken to Pharaoh are, let my people go, not a period there. Statement continues, that they may serve me in the desert. And so that means instead that God's primary motive for doing what he does is a right relationship with his son. What son? Moses? No, no. Listen to this language from Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there are references to all the people of Israel being God's chosen firstborn son. And from the fall of man, there were oppressed peoples all over the world. But among them all, it is Israel that God goes after like a father rescuing a lost son. And thus, as we enter in today's really confusing passage, it's necessary to start with this premise. The point of Exodus is not freedom. It is about God's calling his own people back to him in order that they may enter into a relationship, one in which father and son are obligated to each other. So what does such a relationship entail? Well, first of all, privilege, the privilege of a son. Young disciples, you need to write down that word, privilege. In order to get us back into the story here, where we left off last week, if you remember, was the burning bush. And Moses had resisted Yahweh's calling how many times? Anybody remember? One, two, three... Five, five times, but Yahweh graciously persisted. And we've been pretty rough on Moses so far, haven't we? And one of the things I realized this week is one of these days I'm going to meet Moses face to face in the new creation. So I better be careful what I say about him. But here's the thing. Hopefully you've been honest enough to identify with his struggles. I certainly have. But I want you to notice this. Despite his reluctance and his deep sense of insufficiency, he still obeys, doesn't he? He goes, and we read in verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons 
and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The language that Moses uses here is the same as something back in chapter 2. If you remember, there it said, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And so just as Moses went to look on his people then as a young man, he is now returning to Egypt to look on his people again. It's the same redemptive action. What's different is that before Moses had done it on his own, but this time, He is going with God. Therefore, he is now going with peace, with the blessing of his father-in-law. And that's more than Jacob could say back in the day. Remember when he snuck out on his father-in-law Laban? With also the assurance of Moses' enemies cleared out. You see, God had gone before him already. and, And these guys who wanted to kill him were no longer there. Moses is also going with the comfort of his staff, the staff of God in his hand. Should make you think about Psalm 23. Maybe this is where David was inspired by the story of Moses when David says, Your rod and staff, they what? Comfort me. See how Moses is going into this totally different this time. And so don't scoff at a little weaponless family on a donkey headed into Egypt's weapons of mass destruction. If God is for them, who can be against them? There is something transcendently powerful about a person who knows in their bones that they are insufficient for a task, but they're still willing to go with God. That's when you know they're ready. When someone who wants to be a pastor or a missionary comes to me and says, I am eager to do this and I have the skills to pay the bills. I'm like, you're not ready. But when they come and they say, I cannot do this. I am utterly convinced of it, but I'm still willing if God is calling. That's when I know they're ready. But how did Moses get here? His hard heart had said only four verses ago, please send somebody else. Well, it becomes clear in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. When the first man and woman chose their own way in the Garden of Eden, it meant that all people would be born with something called a sinful nature. And one of the results of a sinful nature is what the Bible refers to as a heart of stone. And this doesn't mean that people are incapable of good. It means that they are incapable of choosing God's way again. Or as the New Testament puts it, they do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. They are captive to their own will. It's like petrified wood. Anybody ever seen petrified wood before? It's wood that has turned to stone. And even though it's still around and it's even quite beautiful, It cannot be a living, supple tree ever again. The only thing that could reverse it from hardening further and further would be a miracle. And the same is true of our hearts. And so let us get back to our question, how did Moses get here? Only by the Lord softening his heart, freeing him from being enslaved to his own will. What a miracle has happened. 
And what a privilege to Moses. And see this, though, that it's the same power of God and goodness on display that has actually had the opposite effect on Pharaoh. Rather than being softened, we are told that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened, petrified even further from God's way. Now here you might say, okay, Brad's gotten out his tulip. Okay, capital, all capital, T-U-L-I-P. His Calvinism is coming out this morning. It's turning everyone into robots who only do what God predestined them to do, okay? Actually, that would be hyper-Calvinism, or another word you could give it is fatalism. And what the Bible teaches instead is far more profound than either of those ideas. It is that both at the same time are true. God's sovereign and man is responsible. How that works out, I don't know. But this is what the Bible teaches. Let me give you an example. Exodus will say without any contradiction, first, I, God, will harden his, Pharaoh's, Heart. God's like, I, I did it. I'm sovereign. I'm hardening his heart. Exodus chapter 8, he, Pharaoh, hardened his own heart. Pharaoh chose to harden his heart. And also in Exodus 7, we'll just see that in general, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He doesn't blame anybody for that. It just, just was. And so we can put it this way. In hardening Pharaoh's heart, the Lord simply gave Pharaoh over to his own way. He left him captive to his own will. Pharaoh will say to the Lord, my will be done. And so the Lord will say with tears, so be it, thy will be done. The question then becomes, why did God soften Moses' heart and not Pharaoh's? Anybody ever thought about that? Well, both of them opposed his will. Why will some of you today walk away closer to God and others with harder hearts? Is it because God is always on the side of the oppressed? Like if you've had a rougher week than someone else, like he's, he's more for you? No, no, the answer comes out in verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold... I will kill your firstborn son. Young disciples, you need to write that down. That's what's going to happen to Pharaoh. He does not relent. And it seems the reason that the Lord softens Moses' heart and not Pharaoh's is because Moses belongs to the Lord's firstborn son. Who is that? Who's the Lord's firstborn son that that we've read of here? We said it this morning. Yeah? way to go. Woo, young disciples, listen up. The people of Israel is the Lord's firstborn son in the Old Testament. Now in walking through Genesis together, we become familiar with the importance of firstborn sons in patriarchal cultures. They were the Lord, they were the father's pride and joy. They were given special authority to represent the father and special favor to receive the inheritance. They were what we might call a man's first fruits. An agricultural term, young disciples, you'll want to write this down, or maybe you can sketch a picture of this like the one that's on the screen. First fruits was an agricultural term that referred to the first produce from the harvest. 
often which was set apart as an offering to the Lord. You see, God chose Israel to be his first fruits, the first produce from a harvest of people from all nations. His gracious choice of hard-hearted Israel was a gracious choice for all the hard-hearted peoples of the earth. God's not just showing a favoritism that then is unfair to everyone else. Here's why. Because through Israel, God would reveal himself and draw all peoples to his son. That was the plan. Even Pharaoh had that invitation. And that's what this warning is about. God, the loving father says, if you keep destroying my firstborn son, then it will destroy your firstborn son. Pharaoh, don't go your own way. You can't take the place of God. Your son cannot be the first fruits. And so what is all this pointing the readers of Exodus to? I think it's this, the privilege of a firstborn son. If the people of Israel were reading Exodus rightly, they are not being puffed up in ethnic and religious superiority, but are brought low at the reality of God's gracious choice. What had they done to earn such favor, to be oppressed? Is that what they did to earn it? Is that how they atoned for their sins? No, y'all, they were still in their sins. You see, the privilege of salvation is that God, out of infinite goodness, chooses to take on your enemies and to soften your heart so that you can be in a right relationship like a son. That's the privilege of salvation. And listen, if you read that rightly and it gets beyond cognitive function and down into your heart and your soul and your bones, then you know what the reaction always is. Worship. Not just on a Sunday morning, but in moments throughout your day, standing in awe that I was chosen, my heart was softened, my enemies were defeated, Thank you, Father. Thank you. So that's the first thing in this relationship that between father and son and what it entails. Let's talk about the second thing. It's the responsibility of a son. Young disciples need that word responsibility. All right, my friends. This is where it gets weird. The story continues in verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Oh, Lord, please send somebody else to preach this passage. Please. So here we have some of the most mysterious verses in the entire Bible. Honestly, no one knows exactly what's happening here, okay? So I'm not going to pretend that I have figured it out this week. Listen to the literal translation, just straight from the Hebrew that comes, that comes out here, okay? You don't see it in the ESV version, but you're going to see it here. Now at the lodging place along the way, the Lord met him. Who is him? We don't know who he's referring to and sought to kill him. Who's he talking about? We don't know. So Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off the foreskin of her son. Which son? We don't know. Touched his feet 
whose feet and why the feet? She said, you, who she talking to, are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, don't know who, let him, don't know who, alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. What is going on in there, man? I don't know. So I could spend the next 30 minutes laying out like all the options for who is doing what. But instead, I want to lean on the context to draw out some meaning and get you on into Father's Day lunch, okay? Moses can fill in the details in the new creation, can't he? So let's start with an easier question first. Who is the Lord seeking to kill here? Answer, not sure. But since the immediate context has been about firstborn sons, I'm going to go with Moses' firstborn son, Gershom, as the one who is to be killed here. It could also be Moses. Okay, so harder question. Why is the Lord seeking to kill him? Not sure, except that according to the immediate context, it appears as though Gershom is not circumcised. Could also be Moses, probably not. Follow-up question then, why does a lack of circumcision make Gershom worthy of death? Again, not sure. What we do know is that circumcision was the covenant sign of God's relationship with Israel. And in our culture, the covenant of marriage is symbolized by what? If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a wedding band. In that culture, the marriage between God and Israel was symbolized by circumcision. It was a contract written in blood, and here's what it spelled out, that you had forsaken all others and given yourself only and fully to God. It was supposed to be an outward sign of an inner reality, a response to God's gracious choice, which is exactly what we read later in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to this. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. It's all his. Everything is his. And yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. What is that? Privilege. Amazing. 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. What's another way of saying stubborn? hard-hearted. So there it is. Circumcision was ultimately about having a softened heart, submissive to the Lord's will. And so we might conclude that in not circumcising his firstborn son, Moses was walking in covenant with God, but kind of like without wearing his wedding band. And so he was leaving his son forsaken. Remember here in just a few chapters that firstborn sons, not under the covenant, will all die in the Passover. Continue on with our questions. Why had Moses hesitated on this? Not sure. But what we do know is that his wife, Zipporah, got the memo quicker than Moses and immediately circumcised Gershom. Follow-up question. Why did she perceive this more quickly than Moses? You all know the answer by now. Not sure. Maybe, though, it was the protective instinct of a mother. But here's something that is certain. That for the fourth time in the book of Exodus, salvation from death comes through a woman. 
She is clearly the heroine of this moment, showing once again that God delights to work through the most unlikely people and that he sees women for all that they are when they go unseen by humanity. Which is ironic, and I didn't plan it this way, that this woman and this word would be in this passage and this sermon on a week where our own denomination showed that we're more concerned about keeping women out of the pastorate than we are about keeping women out of abusive situations. And that's sad to me. And I just want to let God's word be God's word and show us what he is doing to care for and to use women. I'm not saying women should be pastors. Don't hear me getting that out there. We convictionally as a church have said that that's not where we stand, that we do love them and support them and are not opposed to women being built up and used in God's kingdom. Continuing on, Zipporah not only circumcises, but touches the foreskin to, quote, his feet, which could have two meanings. One, she touches Moses' feet and says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Or two, she touches God's feet and says, you are a father-in-law of blood to me. Either way, the act atones for the sin, saves the family, keeps the exodus flowing, and shows Zipporah's own covenant commitment to God. In an interesting parallel, take the Egyptian goddess of the time, Isis. Isis was the fiercely loyal wife of the god Osiris, and she was often displayed as a bird. Zipporah is also a fiercely loyal wife, and guess what her name means? Bird. What we have here is nothing less than God's chosen daughter shown to be far superior than even the greatest Egyptian goddess. And more than that, she appears at this point in history to have a softer and more circumcised heart than Moses, the very redeemer of Israel. Thanks be to God for this woman. Okay, so there's some cool things about this crazy passage, but what is the ultimate meaning that we can draw from it? I think it's this that not only does a right relationship with God entail privilege, but responsibility. Yes, a firstborn son in this culture would be coddled and treasured, but the older he grew, the more responsibility that he would have to take on. It would require service to the father and the family. And if he denied it, there would be serious consequences and he could possibly even lose his birthright. And this passage is a real-life example of that. If Moses was unwilling to walk in all the requirements of the firstborn son, then it didn't matter how much privilege he had been given. The relationship with God would have been dead. God would have to found somebody else to do this work. And so the same is true for us. We cannot call on God's grace while refusing his commands. The responsibility of salvation is that God in his infinite goodness brings you out of sin's oppression in order to serve him. Otherwise, we still have a heart of stone and there is no right relationship. Which brings us full circle, back to our premise that none of this is about freedom as an end in itself, but about a relationship in which father and son are obligated to each other. Why is that? Is it that God is just that patriarchal? No, just like in a marriage covenant, just like in a Hollywood film, the earthly form 
points to a heavenly reality. The eternal nature of God is one of a right relationship between a father and a son. And God in his infinite goodness has revealed it to us in the most tangible way possible. A way that you and I could access, though we are outside of God's Old Testament firstborn son, Israel. You see, when Jesus Christ, the son of God, came to earth, he came with the privilege of the fully firstborn son. Colossians 1 speaks of him in this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. See that? It's all his. In other words, he is the father's pride and joy. He is given special authority to represent the father and special favor to receive it all because it's all already his. He was the chosen one, the spitting image of his father, the first fruits, the son whom God would use to draw all people to himself. He came in peace because he came with God. There was no need for him to soften his heart and to free him from being captive to his own will. He was already fully one with God and utterly submissive. You see it, he not only, not only did he walk in his privilege, confident that he was absolutely beloved of the Father, just like what was spoken from the heavens on the day of his baptism, but he also walked in his responsibility. He came completely obedient to the plan that he and the father had made together, which meant things like being born as a fragile baby and riding a donkey with his weaponless family into Egypt. See how the text is speaking of him, even in Exodus. And yet the older he grew, the more responsibility he took on and the more his soft heart was on display to all. Case in point, the Lord came to kill Jesus too. To treat him as though he was outside the covenant, even though he was the covenant, he was the Lord. And yet he threw himself at the Father's feet, cut and bloody on the cross. And it's for this reason that the New Testament refers to Jesus' crucifixion as his circumcision. And ours, listen to this from Colossians again. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, put upon your heart, cut and made soft by putting off the body of the flesh that says, I'm hard-hearted and I'll do my own thing, my own way. No, it was by the circumcision of Christ. That's him displayed on the cross. And so what does that mean? That his death is what can atone for your sins, for your hard-heartedness. That his resurrection then is what can set you free from things like being enslaved to your own will. What does that look like? That looks like you being a person who doesn't want to go God's way. You might even act out in certain ways that are churchy or Christian-y but you really inside don't want to. It doesn't please you. It doesn't bring life to you. It brings more burden. No, no, Christ sets you free from being enslaved to that. So you want to serve him. You sacrifice and you actually come out more joyful than less 
through it all. It also causes things like sealing you back in the covenant. The Holy Spirit comes to live within your heart in such a way that you are sealed forever and you cannot be cut off from the covenant ever again. It also does things like give you a right relationship with your father again. And I don't know about you, but on Father's Day, you gotta be thinking at some point of what you long for in your father. And you may have a good one, you may have a bad one, most likely you have a mixed bag because fathers are virtue and vice as sinners. If they're believers, they're still sinners who will one day be fully redeemed. It's a mixed bag, right? But in your love for your father, your need for a father, you are seeing, you're feeling your ultimate need for your heavenly father. And this is why the New Testament continues to use the language of firstborn sons. Have you ever noticed that? Like you keep reading in the New Testament, it keeps talking about being a beloved son or being given this as a firstborn son and that. It's not because God is being patriarchal or that he loves men more than women. The reason why he uses this language is because in salvation, he credits nothing less than Jesus' own firstborn status to you, whether you are male, female, firstborn, middle child, orphan, doesn't matter. You get the firstborn status. You are now part of God's firstborn son. Jesus then is the firstborn from the dead, and you are his harvest, his church, the people drawn in from all the people's of the world. That is, if you see that you didn't earn it. You didn't earn it because you were oppressed more than others. Or you didn't earn it because the point is mainly to achieve social justice. No, no. You must turn away from both your merit, what makes you think that you deserve it, and your effort to make it happen. And you must be brought low at the reality of God's gracious choice. And so don't walk away today hard-hearted. Walk away today saying, you know, I can be good enough. You know, I can walk away from church and do better this week. No, don't walk away like that. Well, harden your heart further from God. Let your heart be softened and see that you can do nothing apart from him. But for all who would instead have their hearts softened today, here's two fitting applications that come from this crazy passage that you may have read many times in your life and gone, I got nothing, I got nothing. What's going on here? Just keep going. First of all, bask in your privilege, Christian. At the end of today's story, when Moses and Aaron told the people of Israel that God was coming to save them, we read simply, they bowed their heads worshiped what could be a more appropriate response to the gospel but to worship and not just on a Sunday through the formalities but throughout the course of the week with a heart that is cut deep by God's gracious love for you you in a moment go wow I'm so thankful that's worship that's worship second not only bask in your privilege but Walk in your responsibility. The interesting thing about the gospel is that it actually does end up leading you to social justice. Social justice in the way of like serving your neighbor sacrificially. Martin Luther put it together, kind of pulls the whole thing together like this. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. There's privilege. 
A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. There's responsibility. Don't call on God's grace while refusing his commands. Don't be a consumer. We live in a consumer culture. It's just a part of the fabric of our lives that we just show up in places and we just take and take and take and we give nothing. Don't do that in your Christian life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your country, in your world, in your church. Don't just be a consumer. Prove that you are a firstborn son that he saved and do so by serving him. And here, church, is our sign of the covenant. Not circumcision, amen. Thank you, Lord. That one's moved on, okay, amen. And it's not, it's not that you put on a, a ring or get a tattoo or whatever, no, no, no. Here is our sign of the covenant in New Testament age where our hearts are cut and healed. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new, what? Covenant. And the shedding of my blood. Now, often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, church, we are announcing, and we're going to announce this together. In Christ, our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. Our tradition here at Antioch is to come forward if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, and that you would break off a piece of bread, that you would dip it in the juice, you would take it, Celebrating the covenant, your heart cut by God's word and submissive to it, and yet also healed because you're reminded of how much Jesus loves you, how much he welcomes you at his table, and how glad he will be to welcome you to his marriage supper of the lamb one day when he returns. If you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, don't come up here and take this. It will do nothing for you. You need to know that you are not under the covenant. And you, you will pay the price for that, even though you don't have to. So why would you walk away today with a hard heart, choosing to pay the price yourself? So foolish. Don't do that. Instead, turn to Christ. Put your faith and your trust in him, and he will save you today, now, and forever. There'll be people in the back, men and women, to pray with anyone who has any need. Come and let us minister to you as the Lord leads you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you after receiving from your word. Lord, please forgive us where we read parts of your word and we say there's really nothing there. It's too confusing. It's it's too strange. There's nothing for me to interpret. And so I'm just going to move on. Lord, there is treasure to be found in every word of your word because it is alive. It is active and it's sharper than two, any two-edged sword and it cuts to the division of joint 
bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Lord, thank you for the power of your word, and we pray that you would use it to cut in this moment so that we would be convicted of sin or convicted of ways that we have not looked to you, instead looked to our own efforts. And instead, Lord, we would, as we submit to you, be healed at the same time, renewed, reminded that our heart needs a surgeon, our our soul needs a friend, and so we run to the Father again and again and again, and you welcome us. And you've proved it because of what you've done through Jesus. And so, Lord, here on this Father's Day, as we celebrate dads, Lord, we celebrate you, our Father. We cry out to you and ask you to have your way so that you would be so proud, so proud of your children as they respond to you and receive what you so long to give, your love, your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, your sonship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.